Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Today, Kurt and I have um, Bethany Osgood with us. Bethany is a development director at Project Beauty Share. She's the president of Washington's Rural Health Association and director of clinical outreach at Charlie Health. She's been in in the healthcare industry for the last 20 years um, and, and in nonprofit operations as well. She's a very skilled grant writer and manager She's an accomplished public speaker and networking guru. Um, She is um, also very talented at um, health insurance contracting, quality metrics, high reliability organization training, and quality improvement management. Bethany is a retired firefighter and EMT. She is passionate about rural healthcare access and improving our communities through acts of good works and perseverance. Bethany, thanks for being on today. That was a mouthful, and I do get to celebrate. I renewed my emergency medical technician certificate, so I am now currently nationally certified to provide EMT services. That's awesome, but you know, all of these skills that you have, you seem a little bit too young to be this this skilled and retired at anything, so it'll be fun to hear (laughs) your story and kind of hear your journey in healthcare, maybe, maybe just touch on that for a little bit. And then let's talk really, let's get into the rural healthcare access. Absolutely. So my, my journey early on, I am a fourth generation firefighter. My dad was a wildland firefighter and my grandfather was a wildland firefighter. And my great grandfather was the first engineer for New Bedford fire uh, department in Massachusetts for their very first steam engine. So healthcare goes way back for us, uh, us fam- and our family. My mom's a nurse. Both of my daughters are EMTs, and one of my daughters is going into nursing school. And so it's just it's kind of that grand tradition. And I started out, you know, being a firefighter and EMT, and got a little injury. So I was like, hmm, what do I do? Let's go back to school. So I did something crazy called applied anthropology and um, in healthcare administration with a minor in uh, archeology span and forensics. So wild, wild, yes. I, I got into social work and I thought, oh, I don't like this. I really wanna do something investigative. And uh, so kind of led me to that forensic archeology span and anthropology. That's an interesting combination. You don't hear that very often. Maybe talk for a second about how those, how those complement each other. It's interesting because when you look at anthropology, which is really the study of cultural norms or cultures as they develop through time, most notably, you know, in archaeology, we talk about Neanderthalensis and Homo erectus and um, the advent of cultures through Greek culture and Roman culture and the study of their bones and what they ate and clothing. And that really melds well with this this um, kind of current environment that we're in, because we have really gotten this cultural awareness, especially with COVID-19, about who we are, where we came from, who do we identify with, and how do we collect as a community to support each other 
through all of the movements that have happened me to BLM over the last few years. Mm, that's fun. It's fascinating. And I love that you can, you know, you can kind of dive in and get your own little niche in there of what you really do want to do. So you didn't really like the social work aspect. Mm -hmm. So where did that lead you? It led me into working with juvenile de detention. So I started out working in their substance use and court school, after school programs, the, in, the jail, the rehab. And then when I moved up to Spokane, I just kind of fell into behavioral health and healthcare administration and all these doors opened up and I was really blessed to work with nonprofit, large hospital systems, large insurance companies through tribal work, through health disparities, accountable communities of health, looking at the change of, of you know, when Obamacare or Medicaid got that expansion boost of how do we reach people where they're at? You know, whether you're pro or against uh, Medicaid expansion, people need services. People need that lifeline in the state and at the place that they're in in their lives. And I've just been super blessed to work with organizations across the board, meet, meeting people where they're at and getting them those essential services. Hmm. Well, you know, it, it occurs to me that those of us who live near a city or within a city, you know, that's well-established, really don't think about the rural aspect and, and people that don't live near or even, you know, have good internet access and good access to healthcare. What do you see, you know, what's your, your experience and what have you seen at, on your journeys as you've been in healthcare as far as that rural aspect goes? Great question about rural healthcare. It's an interesting dichotomy. Um, I call, I've done a lot of research. It's called spatial in in I can't even talk, spatial inequity. And it really is defined in the economic social indicators of well-being across a geographic line. And about 2017, 2018, Spokane Regional Health Department did a disparities report. So depending on where you lived with your zip code, your life expectancy could vary up to 12 years. And they were looking at some of those zip codes in rural areas and rural neighborhoods pre-COVID. And that's interesting because people choose to live in rural areas because it's cut off, it's a small town, farming aspect. I love to be out in nature. I love the rural living. However, urban centers have specialty care, cancer cares, the transportation, the schooling, and a lot of that funding that comes and provides those services. We don't see the specialty care or the food banks or the robust school systems. We see those small community granges and, and churches getting together to support. So when we talk about that spatial inequity, you can have poverty in urban settings, but poverty in rural settings is a little bit more exaggerated because of the geographic spatial uh, uh, kind of um, the word I'm looking for is uh, almost blockage or uh, inability to access. So then we fold in COVID where all of a sudden everybody was sequestered at home. We were sat home from work, our schools closed down, our safety nets closed down, the transportation closed down and schools and our jobs provided us outlets. They provided us people watching over our well-being looking out for our poverty, hunger, homelessness, mental health, behavioral health, your neighbor or your coworker saying to you, hey, you know, I noticed that spot on your arm. Did you get it checked out? The school nurse noticing that a child wore the same clothes two weeks in a row and maybe hadn't eaten. That went away so that the, the rural poverty got exacerbated through the lack of noticing things, accountability, the catch net for people, the schools. Now we've just shown that our rural communities are starting to suffer because suicide rates are up. Food banks and hygiene banks are being used and they're at capacity and they're having to turn people away. Uh, the buses that used to go out into the rural communities and bring people in for hospital visits, for their chemotherapy, for dialysis, mental health 
appointments, that went away because of COVID. So now we've got this exasperation of what do we do to support our rural communities? Mm. So a problem, I mean, it was a problem to begin with because because access is limited, but there was con- connection, right? There's schools and, you know, mm-hmm. churches and connection. And when, when COVID came in and it reduced all of that, and so not only are we isolated and having that increase in mental health and, you know, um, less access, it's interesting the way you use the word poverty, because in my mind, I often associate poverty with economics, but it's more access. What you're saying is it's not just, you know, the dollar, but it's also access to those things that we all take for granted when we don't live rurally, right? The fact that you can get to a hospital relatively quickly, that the fire department's going to get to your house when it, when there's a fire relatively quickly. I mean, those are just a few that I can think of off the top, and you mentioned quite a few as well. Right. So I also work with Deer Park Volunteer Ambulance, and we're a little north of Spokane. We actually cover more than 620 square miles with two ambulances, often just one ambulance and one paramedic. And so if that, that it's not necessarily poverty, it's an inequity, but if you're in a rural area, we have so many amazing things. We have a, a bazillion lakes. You can go skiing, water skiing, kayaking, hiking, downhill skiing, um, snowshoeing. But if an accident happens, um, a car accident, a cardiac uh, arrest, respiratory failure, let's say you get into a snowmobile accident, the response time is that much greater then to get to treat you is that much greater. And then to bring you back to the hospital is that much greater. On top of almost all of our hospitals regionally in you know, North Idaho and Eastern Washington, Spokane are on divert because of COVID. So they're maxed out, there's no room. So where do we take somebody that's critically ill or injured? Um, and then you've reduced their time for treatment because it takes such long time to get to them. In addition, um, there's not enough workers to clear roads. So if you live out of town and you have a, we have a huge snowstorm, how do we get to you or how do you get to resources like your food bank, your doctor's office to get your diabetic medication, um, the pharmacy, the grocery store, if there's no path in or out from your home as well, because Department of Transportation might have a, a shortage of staff a shortage of school bus drivers. So my child might live a mile away from the school bus, I drop them off, but that has changed. The school bus route has changed because we don't have drivers. So now I might not have a car. How am I gonna get my child to that school or that school bus? So we're we're looking at greater and greater disparities of basic things that we take for granted maybe in an urban setting. So I can see that it it becomes a growing problem, especially with as long as COVID has been, you know, hanging out there for us and been a concern. Um, What's the solution? Do we have solutions to help in these areas? You know, what what are you seeing there? Because that seems like a fairly daunting kind of a situation. It is. There's there's some really good solutions on the horizon. Just a couple of notations. So there's 26% of our population in Washington state, roughly 1.8 million people that um, subscribe to Medicaid. That's 17% in Idaho and 24% in Oregon. Some of the Medicaid insurance plans have been really innovative by doing regional case managers in the counties. And so if you call into your insurance plan and say, look, I'm experiencing some homelessness, I'm experiencing mental health issues. It's a six month waiting list just to see a counselor. I can't get to my food bank. Um, I I really need some transportation to go do wound care or diabetic care. Uh, I'm really impressed with the Pacific Northwest using the insurance companies with those case managers to, it's called a pathways model. The patient's in the middle and you have a wheel and these little spokes go out to all these wonderful little things that can provide them with essential benefits. So a pathways model or wheel and spoke model of case management is one aspect. The other aspect is with Deer Park Ambulance, we're doing community paramedicine program. So if we go to your house, Shelly, and hey, you know, I've known Shelly, we've been here a couple of times. 
over the last two months. And I've noticed that you don't have a lot of food in your home. Um, I noticed maybe there's some hygiene supplies that you might need. With your permission, I'd love to send somebody out to deliver a hygiene box and a food box to you. And if need be, can I connect you with some counseling if you need that? Like we'll have somebody reach out to you in your time and space. So community paramedicine is huge and working with that. Also, you know, through Project Beauty Share, distributing 80,000 pounds of essential hygiene supplies in the Pacific Northwest each year, you know, gives the child back a smile because they can brush their teeth. Um, you know, can you imagine not having the ability to, um, you can take a shower, but you have no soap, no shampoo, your family sharing one stick of deodorant. So giving the gift of those essential items back to a human really elevates their mood, elevates their mental health, and helps them give that integrity back as well. Uh, I'm really impressed of, uh, with Second Harvest and a lot of our food banks. They'll do mobile food banks where they'll drop off at sites, kind of like Meals on Wheels, to your churches or to your homes as well. And so connecting people with basic essential items through any means possible, having food on fire trucks, having warm blankets and hygiene supplies with the police cars and the sheriff's cars, it just adds that next layer of I care about you. Mm. It, and, and even with, I mean, I heard you talk about the fact that food banks are maxed out. They, you know, they are not, they, they are, they're maxed out. Everybody's needing them and, it's, you know, the, the urban areas are needing them as well. And, and so are you seeing some of these programs that you're involved in that are able to bypass or override some of that, you know, some of that being out of stock and, you know, over, over, overused? That's uh, one, another wonderful, great question. What I've seen is churches and community gardens stepping up. So what, like our local community here, I'm really blessed in the neighborhood I live in. We have a community garden and everybody attends it. And we take that harvest and then take it to our food bank. So the community gardens has really aided in that. Churches have really aided in that. Having um, recipe cards to make sure that your dry goods go further so that you can cook at home, I think is going a lot further. And it's a combination now. You don't just go to a food bank for your box of small vegetables, but we're doing proteins and recipe cards and you're getting hygiene supplies and toilet paper and diapers and formula. So as a collective, all these nonprofits are working together to redistribute in areas and collectively use our trucks and our gas to get them to the places they need to be. Because they're going out anyway. Right. If you're already going out there and you have room, might as well let me put a pallet of toothbrushes on there as well. Hmm. And so as a, <clears throat> how, how much time do you spend as an EMT? I, I thought I heard you say that you had, you started doing that out in Deer, in Deer Park. Yeah, so I've been with Deer Park since March and um, I probably spend about five to 10 hours out there helping them write grants and doing some uh, PIO, which is public information. Uh, so just an interesting thing, we were getting about two to 3,000 calls a year. Since COVID hit, we've increased to almost four to 5,000 calls. And those calls have changed. We are getting a lot more falls. So I've fallen and I need help up because my family isn't here and they can't get to me to take care of me. My caregiver that usually comes two or three days a week to clean and help me with stuff isn't here because of COVID. So we're getting those, those assist calls that are increasing by two or three a day now. We're also seeing the diabetic and the wound care. Hey, I just, I can't get in to see the, the, the doctor. There's no appointment. Can you come out? And we're, we're cleaning wounds and we're repacking them for them. Uh, we're also seeing a lot more psychiatric calls. Uh, it's really, it's unfortunate, but the suicide rate here, especially amongst first responders, has significantly grown um, over the past few years as well. So it's it's sad to see the different calls that we've changed. You know, paramedicine usually is for emergency calls, your car accidents, your strokes, your heart attacks, your traumatic injuries. And it's really changed to 
Hi, Shelly. Nice to see you this week again. I see that you needed some help with your wound. Let me forget, let me help you out a little bit. And you fell, let me do some vitals, administer some oxygen. So we're, we're seeing that change. Hmm. And the other thing, which is really near and dear to my heart and has broken my heart a little bit, whatever side you fall on politically, I won't get into a political debate, but we're losing a huge chunk of our workforce with the vaccine mandates. And so a, a system that's already taxed Hospitals that are already full are losing our police, our fire, our ambulance workers, our medics, our nurses, our care coordinators to the vaccine mandate as well. So already stress system is going to have that, that, that shortage of staff. And I, I don't have the solution for that. I wish I did. I'm just the Bethany. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of, you know, we're, everybody's in, in a change position, right? You know, uh-huh. our, our economies are becoming more and more tele, you know, virtual, uh-huh. virtual world. And, you know, our, our workplaces are becoming more virtual. And I don't think that's going away, right? That is, that is a change that's here to stay on some level. And even, I agree. Yeah, and even though COVID seems to be, well, this may, it seems to be slowing down a little bit, which I don't know if that's even really true because with the variants and stuff, it's, it's still very concerning, especially to those high risk people. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't see a shift. I don't see a real shift in some of the problems that, that two years or year and a half of COVID has created for us. I don't see those starting to dissipate near as fast as what maybe we would expect COVID to go away. I think we're going to have some lasting effects for a lot longer. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. And I believe, you know, that's where the blessing of where Charlie Health comes in, providing that virtual behavioral health services, the intensive outpatient, the counseling, the the work groups, the peer support groups. You know, the Department of Health has some wonderful virtual programs that they're working on, virtual schooling, uh, large health systems uh, offers now virtual appointments. The, here's the, the, the crux of it, though, is um, I don't know how rural you guys are, but I know, for example, the high-speed Internet stops 500 feet that way. Mm-hmm. So, great, I have high-speed Internet 500 feet from my house, and, and I would love to be able to do a virtual visit, but I have limited phone data. And so I think with infrastructure and we're looking at problem-solving and continuing that virtual reality, and the virtual access, we also need to look for our communities to provide the the virtual platforms, the tablets, the phones, the computers, and then the hotspots and internet access. And that's where some of the really great uh, networking with schools has happened because schools have those computers and tablets and the, the Wi-Fi connectors that they can send home for that family to use. So if health systems, mental health counselors and case managers can buddy up with the schools, to use that technology, then we've opened up even a broader ability for people to connect. Hmm. But if you don't have that that really good internet, right? If you're stuck with cell service or uh-huh. satellite service or whatever that is, are we are we getting better at utilizing the resources that we do have to make that access, or is it still pretty rough in some rural areas? It's rough in some rural areas because people took advantage of their community colleges and the libraries and the schools and the community centers and churches, which offered that platform for you to go down, check your email, do your virtual appointments, and then go home. You know, with the on and off again switch of open, close, open, close because of COVID, people have been cut off from there. I'm hoping, and we are working on several different grants out here with, with Department of Health, with SAMHSA, and some other platforms to provide that infrastructure and to keep these places open so that people can, you know, how you used to check out your book. Now let's check out a tablet with a hotspot and be able to get your appointments done, do your mental health, um, renew your prescriptions, help your child get on with education. And so that there's that constant ability to tap into the technology that you need to stay connected. That seems like um, like a really expensive, <laughs> uh, an expensive option, right? Because t- you can take a book home and it's paper and you know it's bound, and 
but you take an electronic device home that's you know a thousand dollars there's a lot more wear and tear and a lot more down how do we you know how do we fund those extra costs those extra dollars to provide that service right in addition it is a lot of wear and tear and they're hard to replace and they're hard to you have to do constant updates and you know you, you know i don't know how many times a day you get a little reminder that says restart now for your updates uh, how we pay for that, hopefully, you know, maybe with the infrastructure bill that's going to come out of Washington, D.C., fingers crossed, whether you feel you are on the right side or left side, um, infrastructure has changed from roads and bridges and highways and is now incorporating technology and the Internet. So I'm hoping that we will see some of that funding and that money if uh, both sides of the aisle can get together and come up with a, a well-rounded package that we can mostly all agree on. I think the other thing is through grant writing. I've been doing a lot of research and working with agencies, you know, Department of Health, FEMA, SAMHSA, on those IT grants so that we can provide that funding and purchase the, the ongoing um, need for those tablets and the Wi-Fi hotspots. And then there's accountability as well, is taking care of the equipment and trusting that your community and the people using that will take good care of it and return it. That's expensive. <laughs> it is expensive. And, and Bethany, you talk about these grants. Maybe give us an idea. You know, we've got people all over the nation listening. Are, are the same grants that are available to you available to every other state out there? Are these federal grants? Are these state grants? What does that look like in case other people, you know, I'm sure everybody's trying to tap into these kind of resources. Agreed. Yes, so um, I use grants.gov and GrantWatch. Those are my two favorites, and you can subscribe to them. And it's a really neat program because they'll offer, they can help you with budgeting, they can help you with proofreading. So SAMHSA is a federal grant, FEMA is a federal grant, Department of Health and HHS, they're all federal grants. As the president of the Washington Rural Health Association, I'm connected to the national Rural Health Association work group. Um, some of our target goals are working on more funding and more grants for IT equipment. Also reimbursement rates. That's, I wanted to jump ship a little bit and talk about reimbursement rates as well. Reimbursement rates are really low when it comes to Medicaid and Medicare for uh, transport with an ambulance. Um, behavioral health, so a counseling session, intensive outpatient, Pre, you know, pre-hospitalization, uh, your medication management. Medicaid rates and reimbursement rates are so low that it's hard for agencies to stay in business. You have to do volume over quality sometimes. So if we can, as part of this infrastructure and working with both sides of the aisle, we can motivate and get Medicaid reimbursement rates to the level of Medicare or some private then you'll start seeing also a quality and improvement in the technology and the access so that we can support more people in rural communities as well. So, so if, if there's more money, which, you know, this is, a, this is a debate and has been for as many years as I have been alive and then some, right? Uh, yeah, probably since the dawn of uh, democracy. Yeah, it's what's, what's affordable health care, and, and the goal is to get that health care down to affordable rates for everybody because it's expensive and it costs a lot of money to, to provide those services. And the people who are providing the services need to make a living, you know, as well as the ones who need access. They need, they need those services. And so if, if those rates were to go up, um, well, this is an interesting question I don't know the answer to because I'm kind of motivated in that direction too, is how do we advocate for that? Right. I mean, what- How do we- Yeah, how do we that? advocate for that? And what avenues do we go down yeah. to say, look, this just isn't enough. We have two ambulances in for 600 miles. That is not sufficient. Right. And how we advocate for that is you get involved with the work groups. I, you know, I, there's a bazillion offers for work groups out there. I just got an email from one of my good friends from the Department of Health, and he sent me about 15 links of all these different work groups. And I'm thinking, oh, holy, I don't have enough time in the day to attend all of these. But getting involved in some sort of work group that speaks to legislation, that speaks to that change, 
being involved in that grassroots level is super important so that our voices are heard, um, as well as advocating for your neighbors, for your community to have those, those access points. Uh, you know, it, it takes a village. Change starts with me. So there's one day every single month that my husband and I, we take time and we go in our community and we deliver as well. And what we do is we, we show up, we deliver meals, we deliver hygiene supplies. I visit some of the tribes. I work with my tribal entities that I just love. And, and we try to make that small difference every day. On a bigger level is there are several rural health work groups that you can get involved in, legislative, there's petitions. It's kind of the same old song, but they do work when you get in there. Voting is also another huge important piece of if you want to see change, you got to get in there and you got to start running and voting. And I think sometimes when you look at the voter turnout rate was 21%. I think to myself, oh, holy heck, where's the other 69%? Where were you? Let's get in this together and start voting. And then there's leadership. Leadership is a huge aspect of that communication piece. So one of the things that I'm doing as leadership with Deer Park Ambulance is we are working with our community on what we call corporate hero sponsorship or levels. So we have large crane companies, cement companies. We still have uh, timber, lots of those diesel. So part of that is I go to them and I say, Shelly, you own Shelly Incorporated. How about if you become a sponsor of Deer Park Volunteer Ambulance? And as part of that sponsorship, you can send two people to our EMT course so that you'll have two registered and fully licensed EMTs at your facility. We'll also come twice a year and do CPR and first aid classes and purchase AEDs to save lives in your facility in real time. So that's that reciprocity. So now you're helping Deer Park so that we can purchase another ambulance and have another crew for life saving. And we're providing you with a service to have EMTs, first aid, CPR, AEDs, and we'll help you with your OSHA training so that you're compliant and you can save money on your insurance. It's that reciprocity. It's looking at things just a little bit different so that we can support the community. Mm, I love that. And I, I love that there are resources out there, but they may not know, right? A corporation may not know the needs. And so there's a, there's a ton of need for education and, you know, helping inform people of the challenges that are out there and then finding those creative connections like you just talked about. I think that's super powerful to say, look, we've got this rural community out here. Some of your people are part of that and you could help by doing this and we're going to help you by doing this. I, I like it. I like it a lot. I think that's... Um, I love to see creativity and thinking outside the box because it, it's a win-win. It is a win-win. And, you know, for all your listeners out there is we all have the capacity to make a difference. And we're forced into, whether we like it or not, but we've been forced into a different way of thinking because of COVID. And my heart says, gosh, I really hope we get out of this soon. But science... And, our, and if, if we know the cycle of pandemics, we're going to be going through this again. So how do we be prepared as a community, as a society, technology-wise, to combat what we're seeing? You know, children falling behind in education, mental health um, crisis is rising, disparities for getting basic essential needs. How do we prepare for that for the future? So again, if I come up to you and say, hey, you have Shelly Inc., you're a large corporation and not only are we going to, um, you're going to be our corporate hero. We're going to teach you EMT first aid, get an AED and help you with your OSHA to reduce your insurance costs. But one of the other things that I think would be really great is, Hey, once a month, can you maybe do a little food drive? If everybody in your corporation brings two non-perishable items, then we can hand them out at your location on a Saturday or at a farmer's market. So now the people that are doing really well in your business are aiding in supporting the community. And that's an aspect that I just absolutely love and support. 
and some other things that you know that we can look at as well in our communities is utilizing the transportation system, utilizing Department of uh, Transportation, utilizing our plowing, utilizing our school buses, as because we got to meet people where they're at. And, and you talked a little bit about what that would look like, but with a with a you know a, a city bus going out into rural areas, how feasible is that? Can we afford to do that? And how often can that happen? And what can that city bus do on that route as it's going to try and see if it can help bring people in? So great question. Some of the things that we've talked about is they have the free and reduced lunch at schools. And so if you're sending those school buses out, you can send those free and reduced lunch lunches already packed and so when you drop off the youth at their home, you're dropping off a meal for them as well mm. so that they have that ready to walk in the door to help their family out. You know, rather than bringing all the families into the school and standing in line or going through a drive through just pack the bus, drop, give them the grocery bag. I've packed a bazillion of those. You give it to the youth. Non-discriminatory, everybody gets one. I know that that costs money, but we already have that free and reduced lunch program happening we already have breakfast before the bell in Washington state, which has already passed legislature and is already in schools that everybody, regardless of socioeconomic status can get a breakfast. So using the, uh, we have transportation buses that go out to the small communities to bring people in for doctor's appointments. You know, why can't that bus also stop by the pharmacy before they send them back home so they can pick up their prescriptions and then they can send them back home. So it's it's kind of buddying up those services on that wheel and spoke pathways hub model. Hmm. I love the idea and the concept. I'm sure that finances and <clears throat> you know figuring out how to make all of the dollars work in that kind of a scenario is our biggest challenge. And and we are a very affluent country. Certainly, we should you know we're putting out billions and billions of dollars in healthcare and in these kinds of services, there's gotta be a, you know, it seems like somebody with some real creative thinking can figure out a way to do it without it being more money, but, but you know, just combining these things that are already both costing money. I agree with you. And you know, some other little um, <clears throat> interesting stats, if you go on the RHI hub, which is the Rural Health Indicators hub, it talks about, and it really breaks down by region, by county, what the disparities are and and some ways to tackle those disparities so for an example is we have some smaller communities and one of them that i absolutely love and it's so innovative is just south of spokane and pomeroy and it's by the brochi family and so the brochi family owns millions of acres of apples cherries peaches the orchards everywhere in eastern washington and what they were noticing is the migrant workers were traveling in and out of their space and they would go where the harvest was. So in their innovative thinking, they put a city right outside of Pomeroy. So they, they did apartments, they did many houses, there's a grocery store, there's a preschool, there's a health clinic there, there's a community resource center, and then they coordinated with all the schools for the older kids to be bused in and out to their home schools. So now where people were transient and didn't have a home base, they now have a home base at the small little city that they built next to the warehouse and the harvest. So their, their children have a stable place to live. They have a healthy grocery store to go shopping. There's a preschool, there's a clinic there. There's, and they just opened up a dental clinic, which is quite amazing. And so large companies like the Brochi family have the capacity and the ability to make these little micro communities to provide that stabilization where services come to them. Hmm. And I would challenge listeners and large companies, maybe across the United States to kind of look at that model and it saved them money because people had less, less sick days. They had their families there, their children were getting educated, their health was being taken care of and they were offered good food to shop for at the grocery store. 
Well, and then they're they're migrant because they've got to go where the work is, and and they're right. helping them with that by busing them to those locations. Is that what I That's heard correct. you say? Yep, they will bus the workers to the different locations throughout the state, Oregon, Idaho, and Washington, while their families will be able to stay. You know, they're citizens because they've, they've gotten to that point where they're working and they're living here. Um, but you don't have to take the three-year-old with you on the bus to your day. They can stay at the home. They can stay at the preschool. And they can get the dental care. Uh, to me, that's a brilliant idea. And you're saving money and you're providing a community, a healthy community for the third, fourth, and fifth generation and the dreamer generation. Well, and you're providing a dream for them as well, right? You're keeping them from being stuck in this poverty, transient, homeless type of a profession that is all that they know. It's how they know how to make a living. It's all they've known. Um, right. So and I love turn, that. And in turn, it saves tax money because, let's face it, our tax money pays for the Medicaid population and the people that can't afford the food, the housing, and the care that they need. So we are saving money in turn by putting, by putting safety nets in place and we're putting stable housing, work, food, and healthcare and education in the path of the people that need it. Hmm. I love that innovation. That's, um, it, it kind of warms my heart to think that there really are people out there that, and, and I know there are, there's lots of them, right? We hear stories about it all the time and it, <clears throat> it's part of what makes the, you, you know, the North America and and um, very affluent countries, um, kind of that human heart side of them, right? Is that it's about the people and it's about figuring out how to help the people. And those are the stories and the situations that really, I think, make a difference in our communities mm -hmm. and, and in our countries. So I love to hear that that's happening. Thank you, I do too. I The work I do is because I'm just so passionate I got, I renewed my EMT to get back into it because my daughter also works at Deer Park and an AMR, American Medical Response. And she said, mom, don't you miss it? And I was like, mm, maybe. And then I went out on a call and I was like, oh my God, I so miss this. <laughs> I miss helping people in the real space. And, but the, the hard thing that I struggle with is in the PIO role, uh, public information officer, is sharing with the community how we need their support, financial, emotional, um, economically. We need their support, you know, because when we're going out on those ambulances, by gosh, we're bringing our own stethoscopes that we purchased ourselves. And it's, you know, we want to give you the highest level of care we can. ALS, advanced life support, with the right equipment, clean, brand new, top-of-the-line, state-of-the-art equipment that we can give you. And that costs money. And when you're a nonprofit EMS agency that's not levy-funded, that those materials are really difficult to come by. Competitive wage is really difficult to come by. And we, we wherever, if you have one of those services in your community that's a nonprofit EMS service, go support them. 20 bucks goes a long way. You have no idea how much bandages, $20, actually covers for us. It's amazing. It's the little wins to get out there and support that I think if we can start continuing that movement of just those little acts, and so many people talk about it, I'm sure. Oprah talks about it all the time if you still watch her. <laughs> it's that small, the small ball, snowball makes a large one. Yeah, it sure does. Um, with these nonprofit um, ambulance services like you've been talking about, how are they funded then? They're purely funded through three sources. One is we get reimbursed if we transport. So please note that if an ambulance company or a fire department goes out on a call, I call and I say, my stomach hurts, and they come and they assess me and they treat me in my home and they don't transport me, we don't get that money. There is no reimbursement. So the gas, the equipment, the time, the, the employee wages, that is not reimbursed if we treat you on scene and we don't transport. So transportation is the number one reason, way we get funding. Secondarily, it's grants. So I do a lot of grant writing. Sometimes the, little, the grants are, the little one we got was $1,000. Sometimes we go after the big ones, which is $200,000 because 
and our department, our, our newest ambulance is 10 years old. Uh, the other way is community support and fundraising. Uh, we did a really cool little campaign where we made little masks and water bottles and sold them for $5 each. And the community just came out and supported us. Hmm. So that, that community support and giving is, is super helpful. Well, it's challenging too, because you're already out there working, working, you know, for you, multiple jobs and multiple, you know, trying to go multiple directions to give back. And, and you still have to give more time in order to raise these funds to provide sufficient services. So it, I can see where there's, you know, where there's a, there's a, there's a load and a, and a cost that has to be paid and it's, um, and I'm, I'm grateful that you're doing it. Well, thank you. I, it's a labor of love. It, it is. I love my community and I'm so proud that they allow me to serve. And um, I'm, I, I think sometimes I get more out of it than I give for <laughs> sure. You know, and then there's, you know, podcasts like you and Kurt are holding to, to share across the nation. You know, I, I would love for people to come together and, and after this and, and share suggestions and ideas and ways that we can um, be more innovative. The, I think the only way through this COVID snow that we've been in or this fog is, is through the little acts of community kindness and gatherings and support. Yeah. And, you know, and if you look back at pandemics, the, the Spanish influenza, and you look back at pandemics in Greece and Rome and South America, and as horrific as they were, how they got through it was the pooling of community resources. Well, and that's really the only way that rural areas can sustain is to pull their resources, right? Because they don't have the, the urban network, right? That network, that structure, infrastructure set up that provides those services. You know, you pay a fee and your taxes or whatever, and it provides those services. They, they have to figure that out on their own. And the same guy that's farming down the street is the guy that's also in the meetings trying to advocate for the community. Um, right. So, so it's it's a little bit it's a, it's more, but there's also the other thing that I really love about the rural communities is it's the the outdoor, the space, the you know all that comes with that. Um, but everybody has to be connected, right? It's it's almost survival to be connected because if something goes wrong you got to go to the nearest neighbor. You're not, you know, that ambulance, like you said, could be hours away. Mm-hmm. And so that community, Absolutely. those community ties are really tight. And so there are advantages out there and they do pull together, which I think says a lot, um, a lot for the character of those, of those community members. I agree. I agree. I have a fun little another story to share with you before we end is um, about two years ago, we have a community called Ritzville, which is a little south of us. And one of our well-known farmers, bless his heart, he's been farming his whole life, it's generational, um, came down with cancer. And he was unable to do his fall harvest. So all of the surrounding farmers from probably 200 square miles all sent a farming equipment and staff and did his harvest for him in a weekend. Like, it just, it happened that way. And it gave him and his family time that he could go do chemotherapy and treatment. And that says a lot because it was just one social media post. And then all of these harvesters and trucks and people showed up and a weekend were able to do his work, you know? And to me, those are the heartwarming stories. To me, we have to fight for, for the ability to have those resources. So another example is my neighbor, bless her heart, they're missionaries and they're home for this year. And she's about 30 years old and she has uh, stage three lymphoma cancer. And her chemo was delayed because our three hospitals here were at capacity and with COVID patients. They need treatment of course as well, but to think that we are delaying treatment for cancer treatment for diabetics, for cardiac care, for stroke victims, for autoimmune, for childhood diseases, we're delaying that care also because of the COVID pandemic. So the community got together for her, which was really neat, and they um, 
got her transportation and care to go to the next state over and do her treatment because that was the opening. She didn't have to wait another three months, mm. which was amazing. You know, and then it's like Charlie Health. It's a three to six to nine month waiting period for counseling. They have a 24 hour waiting period, which is incredibly amazing. So there's good things happening. Yeah, there's a lot of progress. And, and I think the message, the message, at least for me, is that it really takes each individual doing their part, right? Looking for where, where they can serve, looking, because I think we have good people. I know we have good people in our communities. They want to help. And, and I think it's the antidote for COVID too, right? Is that we're all isolated and we are tired of being isolated. How can we help? How can we go get outside of our own world and our own problems and go help somebody else and feel good about that? I think, I think that's what makes our, our culture what it is. So I love that you've shared these examples and shared some of the, you know, the ideas of how we can shift what's happening and provide more access to those rural, rural people. Um, but this also affects those in the urban areas, right? Is that, you know, we're not exempt. There are people that need help right in our own neighborhoods. And so I love I love what you've shared, and I I really appreciate your passion and the work that you're doing because it it is it's those it's that pushing the status quo and you know not accepting what isn't you know what isn't fully serving the population and pushing out and trying to get something different to happen that makes those differences over time. So I love it, Bethany, and I just I couldn't thank you enough for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. I, it was amazing. You found me on LinkedIn and wanted to interview me. I, I feel so humbled and blessed. And if any of your viewers want to reach out to me at any at any time, they can email me at my Deer Park email. Um, if you don't mind me sharing, I can share that. It's B as in Beth, O as in, oh my gosh, S as in Sam, G as in good, O as in O, O is an O and D is in dog at deerparkamb.org. Reach out to me, share me your, share with me your stories, share with me your innovative ideas, share with me your funding. And also it's okay. The last thing I want to share is it's okay. If you're struggling, I struggle. I struggle some days with frustration and anger, or I struggle with depression and I struggle with, oh my God, why can't this just be done? Um, I struggle sometimes to get up and put that smile on my face when I'm dealing with um, toxic people that are still out there in the world. And it's okay to be, to have that moment, throw a pillow, scream at a pillow. If you have to throw a cupcake at something, it's all right. And, and then get a renewed sense of what can I do to make a little bit of a difference? Yeah, because we're going to struggle as human beings. So I love that you bring that human side to it that, you know, we are going to have a hard times. And, and that's part of what, what brings us out of those hard times is being able to see outside of our own struggles because they're real. Amen. Yeah. Amen to that. Shelly, what that's a blessing a you are. Thank you, Kurt. And what a blessing you both are. Keep up the great work. If you ever want to talk about something else exciting, please hit me up. We, uh, we're doing some really cool stuff here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks for being here. Um,